The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was a blind poet whose words launched an incredible era of literary and cultural flourishing, perhaps the greatest the world has ever known. Today we know him as Homer, and the works he left behind, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are long-form epic poems that together run for more than 25,000 lines. For centuries, Homer's works were used to teach Greek schoolchildren how to read and write, and they infused Greek culture with their religious and moral values until they so dominated Greek thought that Plato felt it necessary to criticize the, quote, praisers of Homer, who believe that one can arrange one's entire life according to this poet. But what did the ancient Greeks see in Homer, and what, if any, lessons can we learn from him today? I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Episode 3, Homer. I want to start today by talking about nostalgia. As a kid, when I was in middle school, I used to come home and watch the show Happy Days. Every day I came home, got my snack, got in front of the TV, and watched two episodes back to back. They were on in reruns, and eventually I came to realize that Happy Days had once been a show that was on in prime time, but I didn't know that at the time. A few years after that, when I was in high school, I look back on those days when I watched Happy Days. It was in the late 70s, early 80s. And I felt nostalgic for the days when I was so young and carefree and had enough time to just sit in front of the television after school and watch two episodes of The Fonz, Richie Cunningham, and Ralph Malf. Two, two episodes back to back. That was my lost youth. And along with that nostalgia, I felt a little lost nostalgia or something like nostalgia for all the nights when the show had been on in prime time, which I had not even been aware of. Those nights, I had not even participated in those, but they grew in my imagination. Summer nights with the sun setting and happy days coming on must have been glorious for the people who were enjoying the show as it as it came on at seven o'clock or whenever it came on for them. And I felt the same way about Greece, the movie, I didn't see it in the theater. I taped it on the VCR years after it had come out, and I watched it over and over. And then 
Later, I felt nostalgia for the summer when I fell in love with Olivia Newton-John and sang along with the songs. I felt a little pang for the world of Greece when it was on in the theater, which I myself hadn't actually experienced. There's two layers of nostalgia going on here. And then, of course, the funny thing about both of those shows or the show and that movie is that they're actually about the 50s, a decade I was not even born. I was not even alive for that decade. Those shows are themselves the products of nostalgia, of creators looking back to the time when they themselves were young, a whole nation wanting to relive or mythologize their days at the sock hop or the soda fountain or at the drive-in or all the other settings. In my view of the 50s, a time when I was not born is full of myths and nostalgia, my own nostalgia for the days when I learned about the 50s and nostalgia for the 50s, a time when I was not born. Unpacking that is <laughs> a little bit tough to un untangle. I knew, of course, that Richie Cunningham wasn't real. He's a fictional character. But were the clothes, the activities, the linguistic expressions they used, how about the values? Were those real? Or were those passed along by the inventors of those shows, the creators of those shows? Something the writers wanted us to think? Maybe they themselves believed it? Now, I don't want to press this analogy too far, but I thought it was a way of helping us to understand Homer. What's interesting about Homer, we tend to think of Homer, the writings of Homer as old, not just old, but ancient, right? Sort of dusty, creaky, a little bit mysterious how old they are. They seem to have come out of nowhere. But of course, Homer wasn't old. He wasn't thousands of years old when he was writing. He wasn't himself ancient. He was probably 50 or 40, maybe 30. He was fresh and young. And for generations, he was young and vibrant, new, and he can be that way for ours too, but we have to <laughs> we have to understand what he was trying to do, how he was trying to do it, and the vigor with which he was achieving his aims. Now, Homer, this young, vibrant person, let's think of him that way, he wrote about gods and heroes, but the era he wrote about was already a bygone era. He was looking to the past a past that was, in his view or his artistic vision, a greater era, and he too was looking at it through a veil of nostalgia, just as I was looking at the 50s. To understand him and his influence, we need to understand this web of myth and nostalgia and the past, part history, part invention, part celebration, part contrast with the present, did he exaggerate for effect? Probably. We do know now that this past that he described actually existed, or at least some of it did. We've uncovered the golden artifacts. We know a great civilization existed and was lost. We know that the ancient Greek or Hellenic city of Mycenae was real. It was a world of gold and wealth and towering dynastic achievement. Ultimately, the kingdom fell, the palaces were destroyed by fire. By the time Homer got to them, they were just living on in memories and stories and crumbled ruins and treasures. Centuries had passed, and Mycenae became so faded with time that it became encrusted with legends. 
and some of the genuine facts were lost. The people could write, for example, a fact that Homer, who came hundreds of years later, does not appear to have known. What would you think of such a civilization, more advanced in some ways than anything that came after for hundreds of years? Reminds me of the medieval period, with peasants and shepherds walking among the enormous stone and marble Roman ruins. What would you think if you were that peasant? You'd probably look at the achievements all around you and think, what race of superhumans built all this? We dirt and live under rocks. Or think of the pyramids, so overwhelming in their grandeur that to this day it's easier to believe that space aliens were in charge of things back then. (laughs) Not humans, surely. Gods must have walked the earth. For Homer, the culture that had come before had been one of astonishing feats and achievements. The Trojans and Achaeans must have seemed larger than life, all the more so as they came handed down in oral stories, no doubt embellished over time. Homer, or maybe it's the group of people that we know today as Homer, took these stories, recorded them, and lit them with the fires of genius. Maybe it was one person inventing his craft and perfecting it at the same time. Or maybe it was the product of generations of storytellers who polished the story like those rocks at the entrances to caves, rubbed smooth by thousands of hands of tourists, until the story gleamed with perfection for the lucky scribe who etched it to clay. And in so doing, that scribe initiated one of the great rivers of literature that coursed through our planet. By now we've seen other tributaries. The Old Testament is itself another Nile, if not an ocean. And we'll see the many streams that flow out of Homer's works. We'll see some new forms that appear out of nowhere and eventually join the flow. But if you want to trace literature back to its fountainhead, to the earliest important sources, there are very few rivals to Homer. And in the Greek tradition, which his works dominated, he stands alone. We know very little for certain about Homer. Often thought to have been blind, the current view is that he likely lived in Iona slightly before 700 BC. Homer, whether it's a single person or a collective of people, either gathered or drew upon centuries worth of oral storytelling and left us with a coherent, complete narrative. Two of them, in fact, the Odyssey and the Iliad, which are two of the greatest works in all of literature. The works spread throughout the growing city-states of Greece that were just beginning to think of themselves as a unified culture, giving them a third source of unity, along with language and religious similarities that otherwise went their own way, forming their own political systems and ways of life, and meeting on occasion for the Olympic Games which started in 776 BC, just a few generations before Homer. Homer's works are rich with human nature, both in the heroes and humans they describe, and the gods too. They're deceitful, jealous, rivalrous gods who have affairs and steal and express frustration and disappointment and resentment and joy. Some of the gods have origins traceable to deities in Egypt and Asia, but they depart from those models by showing a remarkable humanity. We're a long way from Yahweh. Homer wrote on the cusp of the first era of full literacy. His works took Greece by storm, becoming a source of morals and the basis of a literary education. Earlier I used the metaphor of a river, but it is of course the sea that pervades Homer's works, 
The Mediterranean is at the center of his mental map. It touches everything. It's the great geographical fact of the Greek world. Like the Manhattan subway, where proximity to one stop can take you to anywhere else on the island, access to a coast where the bulk of the population lived could lead you to any other touch point in Greece. This flow of ships and peoples helped ideas spread, and it fostered a great variety of political systems. It made them, the Greeks, multicultural and brought all the creativity and spark that introductions to diverse approaches to life can bring. The societies transformed rapidly for their era. They began as pagan and ended as Christian, with a remarkable flowering of genius in between. And a million smaller transformations in all walks of life flowed through the Greek mind as well. In a few short centuries, the Greeks developed astonishing new ideas and powers of thought, reasoned thought experiments, mathematics, science, ethics, poetry, and theater. Homer, we might say, is the bard who launched a thousand mental ships, or at least was one of the earliest and greatest in the tradition. It's strange to read Homer today. Unlike the Old Testament, the religion in Homer has faded from view. We did not absorb it. We did for a while. Then we rejected it like an invading disease meeting up with white blood cells. Monotheism was victorious. The gods in Homer are curiosities now. Quaint, seemingly a little primitive. Instead, the influence of Homer is all in the characters and observations, the nature of the world, the nature of a hero, the nature of a wanderer, and of course, Homer influenced poetry. And he influenced a world of people. Socrates and Plato are just two examples who in turn influenced us. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine that Homer also informed your view of religion, as he did for the Greeks. Imagine that we had gods who could be laughed at, who coupled with humans, who involved themselves with the lives of humans, not remotely from some abstract location, but who came to visit, who had their own scores to settle with one another as much as with us, who cared about what we did, who watched humans the way we watch a reality show, and vote on the outcome. The Greek gods would have been a huge audience for reality TV. They'd have filled the phone lines with their votes. Our gods, in this thought experiment, are not the Yahweh we saw last time in the Old Testament, the all-powerful being whose ways we cannot know. Our job is not to bow down in deference to this mighty creature of infinite justice and mercy, who stands apart from his creation. We instead have different gods, a whole pantheon of them coming and going. They argue and debate and disguise themselves and get involved. God, Yahweh, created man in his image, but he himself is hardly identifiable as human. Greek gods are perhaps a little too human, at least for our sensibilities. Would it change you if these were your gods? If this was our culture today? I'm sure it would. But how would it? What would it be like? One way to tell might be to look at the people in Homer's works, recognizing, of course, that Homer's characters might differ from us for other reasons altogether. What motivations do the human characters have? What do we see them do that's different from how we behave? One more thought experiment. Let's go back to my example of Greece, the movie, and I swear I did not choose that movie just to make a pun. Let's say you only had photographs. Let's say there were no movies. People stood still and did not move. And then suddenly, 
you had the movie Grease. It would stand out as much as Homer stood up above its peers. You'd watch it over and over. You'd watch it in school, maybe, to study how people moved and behaved and fell in love and sang. How they burst out into song whenever they felt overcome by emotion. Look at how things were back then. They had perfect pitch. They sang in harmonies. Those were... That would be your takeaway from watching the movie Grease over and over and over. An even better analogy might be Star Wars and the mythic creatures it breathed into life. What if that were the only film you had? The one you watched every day at school to understand the doings of a planet a long time ago. And you had a religion that included droids and Wookiees and Jedis and the Force. You'd study it, right? You'd learn its details the way fans of Star Wars actually do trying to learn more about the Wookiee gods from the behavior of Chewbacca. Homer's poems were so pervasive because they were so much better than anything else that was around. And because they were so pervasive, the myths and stories that were within them became all-consuming for the Greeks. They analyzed them as if they were real, as if they were the true hallmarks of their religion or the true signals of what Greek thought and what Greek values were. Let's leave that aside for a moment and just study the heroes. What's heroic to them and what are their values? The Iliad tells the story of a long-ago war fought by the Achaeans against the Trojans to recover the beautiful Helen, the wife of the Achaean king who's been abducted. We are mostly in the camp of the Achaeans with the great warrior Achilles, who is surprisingly petulant and full of change, actually, as his sense of pride and justice push him this way and that. This is not a faceless army ordered into battle by a general. These are individuals fighting hand-to-hand in chariots, and a great warrior can dominate the field the way LeBron James can enter a basketball game and take it over. But Achilles starts on the bench, aggrieved, and much of the Iliad is his story of returning to the battlefield to help the Achaeans triumph. Anger, Wrath, violence, these are the predominant characteristics of Achilles, and we see both the glory and the danger of a life so led. His humanity shines in both his peak and his withdrawal. He's upset at his commander, but also in his return to the battlefield after the death of his friend, Patroclus. This is a warrior's code to avenge, to right wrongs, to deal with grief through murderous rage and acts of valor and ultimately to recognize in others, like the Trojan hero Hector, the same spirit and dignity and worth. We recognize Homer helps us see the toll that this takes. This is not a Paul Bunyan story, a mythic man of comic size and cutesy feats of strength. Achilles is savage. His love for Patroclus, his best friend, might inspire his actions, but they're vicious nevertheless, uncompromisingly brutal as battlefield, hand-to-hand combat must be. But Achilles also transforms. He's moved to pity by the sight of Hector's grieving father, who reminds Achilles of his own father, whom he'll never see again. And Achilles weeps, the anger finally leaving the man, and war finally, if temporarily, giving way to peace and sorrow. It's a complex view of a hero, and it's Homer's artistic genius that brings it fully forth. The Iliad takes place in a few weeks during a ten-year siege of Troy. The Odyssey is the story of a man attempting to return from that war. It's the story of a great warrior, 
but Odysseus, or Ulysses, as he was known to the Romans and is often known today, is a different character altogether. Wisdom has replaced wrath, and part of the thrill of these two books is contrasting the strength and savagery of Achilles with the supple mind of Odysseus. Odysseus, we are told, was a brave soldier during the ten-year siege, but he's also full of pragmatic tricks. He will wear a disguise, change his name, and address each challenge with wily know-how. If Achilles is Yosemite Sam, then Odysseus is Bugs Bunny. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That makes me laugh, but it's completely out of place. It does make... It does make me laugh. I'll have to bring this up with the writers. Let's move on. Odysseus has one great goal, to get home. His wife Penelope has been waiting 20 years, first through the long siege, and now through the wanderings that have kept Odysseus from returning. Penelope herself is as clever, tricking her suitors to hold them off while she waits for more definitive news from Odysseus. Homer sets this in motion like an expert to create suspense. They are a match made in heaven, these two, and you desperately want to see them reunited. At the same time, there are good reasons for them not to be. Odysseus spends seven years living with a goddess, and perhaps should just stay there. Penelope, meanwhile, appears to enjoy being flattered by the other men crowding around her door. And how long does she need to wait, really? Odysseus is as good as dead, for all she knows. Or, he's abandoned her. And in truth, He spent the years in the arms of a goddess. How much patience does she owe him? The suspense of their reunion is heightened because it is by no means inevitable. Each has to give up an alternative along the way. Monogamous love is always like this. We don't always take the time to acknowledge that, let alone explore it, let alone celebrate it, but it's an important part of who we are. Let's embrace it for what it is. Our souls deepen with the richness and complexity of life. Once again, Homer points us toward this. And we have him to thank. So there they are, Odysseus facing a series of obstacles, Penelope continuing to fend off the clods who can't wait to fill Odysseus's place in her heart. And all along the way, this is a a nice piece of storytelling, All along the way, the challenges faced by Odysseus remind him of how easy it would be to abandon his quest. A lotus flower offers forgetfulness. Wouldn't it be easier to forget Penelope and abandon this crazy attempt to return home? You could move on. Circe offers a life of ease. The sirens offer him perfect knowledge. How tempting that would be for someone as clever as Odysseus. And Calypso offers immortality and a permanent home with a goddess in exchange for the frail and ultimately doomed life with his human companion, Penelope. And yet nothing sways Odysseus. He chooses Penelope and their son Telemachus, which in a way is a vote for humanity, just as we've seen from Gilgamesh and his friend. Life has ups and downs, pain and pleasure. That's the truth and the beauty of it. Even for those who don't get to make the choice, there is something instructive in watching someone else embrace the things that we ourselves have as our lot. Even in our unheroic lives, we can seize our moment and embrace both the good and the bad. We can engage in the struggle and hopefully taste the triumphs as well as the sufferings. 
although the sufferings are good too, because that's part of our journey. In both the Iliad and the Odyssey, we see politics and social organizations up close. Homer's era was one of warring communities and also the rise of the city-states. What does it mean to engage in war? What are the pleasures of civilization? What are our hopes for battles? And what are the consequences? What do we fight for? And what do we give up when we fight? How are we changed when we return from battle? And what do we make of peace? And here the lessons are not always so obvious. Odysseus's house is under siege by suitors. Is that really the peace and tranquility of domestic life? Is it a sleepy retirement or just a new battlefield? For Homer, it seems like a romanticized goal, but it's not a panacea. The gods are implicated here too. They debate what to do and endeavor to help Odysseus escape the clutches of Calypso, who has held him for seven years on an enchanted island with no ships. Poseidon, on the other hand, hates Odysseus for blinding his son, a cyclops, and he troubles the sea to interfere with Odysseus's ship. The battle with the Cyclops is classic Odysseus. He tells the Cyclops his name is Nobody, so that later, when the Cyclops is blinded and calls for help from his friends, all he can say is, Nobody is killing me, and his friends leave him alone. It's a neat trick, but really, how dumb must those friends have been? Nobody is killing me. Nobody is killing me. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for letting us know. (laughs) Nobody's killing us at the moment either. It's like saying, my house is not on fire. My house is not on fire. Yep, got it. All's well over here too. That's a taste of what to expect, but don't be fooled by the comic effect of that event. There are monsters and gods and clever humans, and the whole thing is suffused with myth. But it's myth grounded in reality and humanity. The psychology of Odysseus is complex and persuasive, which allows us access to these poems, even in the tales that veer into the improbable and fantastic. That's the difference between Achilles and Odysseus, the two heroes we have to contrast, and one only wishes that we had a dozen dozen more to look at, and women too. Homer's power and perspicacity, like Shakespeare's or Tolstoy's, are broad and can cover the subtleties of an infinite variety of humans. Humans, human activity, Gods, things, concepts, it's all here. The world is in these poems. What of the poetry? Some may find it slow or tedious today. Make sure you get a good translation. And we'll link to a few of them at historyofliterature.com. In Greek, the lines are written in what's called dactylic hexameter, which is another way of saying six beats per line. And neither of those ways is as good as just saying and now you get it. That's what it would sound like. Robert Fagels, Robert Fitzgerald, and Richard Lattimore all have translations that have their fans. I myself, like Stephen Mitchell, are a translator from the Gilgamesh as well. So go with that, or choose another style you like. In any case, these stories are so rich and vibrant, and the details are so fascinating and the world of the gods and the humans so complex that it makes you hunger for more. Don't fight the poetry. Let yourself sink into it until it washes over you and you no longer notice it. You'll be glad you did. Here's an example. 
This is the famous passage when Odysseus and his crew sail past the sirens. Odysseus has been warned that their enchanting voices will be unbearable. It's the audio version of crack cocaine, so irresistible that the songs lure sailors toward them until they wreck their ships on the rocky shore. So sail away, right? Avoid? Don't even go there? But Odysseus is like us. He's curious to hear it. Wouldn't you want to hear it too? Wouldn't you wonder what it would do to you? Here's what happens. Then, all at once the wind fell, and a calm came over all the sea, as though some power lulled the swell. The crew were on their feet briskly to furl the sail and slow it. Then, each in place, they poised the smooth oar blades and sent the white foam scudding by. I carved a massive cake of beeswax into bits and rolled them into my hands until they softened. No long task, for a burning heat came down from Helios, lord of high noon. Going forward, I carried wax along the line and laid it thick on their ears. They tied me up, then, plumb amidships, back to the mast, lashed to the mast, and took themselves again to rowing. Soon, as we came smartly within hailing distance, the two sirens, noting our fast ship off their point, made ready, and they sang. The lovely voices in ardor appealing over the water made me crave to listen, and I tried to say, untie me, to the crew, jerking my brows, but they bent steady to the oars. Then Paramedes got to his feet. He and Eurylochus and passed more line about to hold me still. So all rode on until the sirens dropped under the sea rim and their singing dwindled away. My faithful company rested on their oars now, peeling off the wax that I had laid thick on their ears, then set me free. But scarcely had that island faded in blue air than I saw smoke and white water, with sound of waves and tumult, a sound the men heard, and it terrified them. There we go. We're on to the next adventure. That's a beautiful passage. I've chosen the Robert Fagel's translation for that. I love the descriptions of the wax and how he carves it out for his crew. How he mentions that it's it was it was not as hard to do as you might think because the wax was soft, because it was noon and it was hot that day. And how after the siren songs have faded, I love how the crew rests on their oars, peeling off the wax, and finally setting Odysseus free. Why is this passage so famous? Doesn't it go straight to the heart of what we all feel when there are things that we know aren't good for us? We know what we should do. We should put the wax in our ears. We should not indulge in the dangerous pleasure. But then we'd miss out. So we want to do what Odysseus does. Lash ourselves to the mast, torment ourselves with how delicious the sound is, and yet still, power through by force of will and some judicious planning for the eventual moment of weakness. We love the idea of something irresistible. We love it because we know that there are things like that in our own lives, that everyone has been addicted to something illicit at one time or another. And we love that a human has figured out a way to indulge. How boring it would be if Odysseus were a superman who could resist all urges how much more sublime it is that he can't resist. He's as weak as anyone else. He's our hero, but he's tormented by how beautiful it is, as anyone else would be. But as our hero, 
he's figured out a way to overcome the weakness and the temptation. And yet, he's not totally beyond us. We too could be this cunning. We can aspire to this kind of practical, pragmatic thinking as we face our less magical but still adventurous daily lives. Hopefully, it works out as well for us as it does for him. There are many more passages like this, and the stories have been absorbed into our culture, but they're no less fun to read. The Trojan horse, the face that launched a thousand ships, Penelope's web, all are here in all their teeming glory. You'll be surprised at the details which don't typically make it into the summary versions we receive and pass along to one another, but these make the stories feel fresh. It's a fun read, a worthy way to spend some time, and it's a very different read for not being the Old Testament, which has such a grip on our own value system that it's hard to have any aesthetic distance. In Homer, we're freer to read the story for entertainment and instruction alone, without the moral weight. And by doing so, we can see our own world afresh. Just don't make the mistake of feeling superior to the heroes and gods and the value systems in the Iliad and the Odyssey. They will interfere with your reading pleasure. And the gods have a way of punishing hubris. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. Next time we'll be back with one of the most elusive and enchanting figures in all of literature, whose open heart and intense powers of observation made her works required reading for the ancients, although they have reached us only in fragmentary fragmentary form. Her name was Sappho, and her poetry of love and life take us from the sweeping world of battlefield heroes to a single mind alert with possibilities and lit with the fires of penetrating insightfulness and creative genius. This is a poetry so fine that even the fragments can shock us with their power, and they leave us breathless, excited and longing for more. I hope you enjoyed the program. Please review us or give us a five-star rating at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you found the podcast to help us keep going. Spread the word to all your friends and your enemies. Why not? Hey, I'm not picky. I have room in my heart for your enemies, even if you don't. Visit us at historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, where the conversation continues. On Thursday, I'll be back with Gar and another Restless Mind show right here on this feed, including a contest update. We're looking at the greatest first lines of all time. Don't miss that. Until then, keep reading keep thinking, and keep embracing the world and your place in it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening to The History of Literature. <laughs>